Wives, likewise being submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy men, holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, we open up your holy word this evening and recognize that each and every time that we open it, whether or not it immediately looks applicable, we know, Lord, that this is your letter to us. So may we not become hardened to your word, may we not neglect it, but be able to take it straight to our soul and come out changed people. In Jesus' name we all said, amen. I was at Youth Workers Conference a couple years ago, and as I was, we were doing a Q&A and there was a guy in the crowd who, there's always that guy who asked the dumb question. And this one guy, even amongst youth pastors, believe it or not, I mean, just look at me, dumb people, dumb questions. So in the crowd, there's this one guy who raised his hand, and he was just kind of giving his opinion. You know that guy who, he doesn't ask a question, he tells you his opinion on things. So he raises his hand, and he says that the reason why the youth are leaving the church is because we're not talking about subjects that, that are relevant to them. So we're talking about things that have nothing to do with them. So they'll go to church on Sunday, and we'll do verse-by-verse verse uh, studies or whatever, and you'll hear things like talks on marriage when none of our teenagers are married. Why would we ever talk about marriage? So he has to use that as an example. And so put yourself in their shoes, because we just started a Bible study by reading a verse that says wives. And I'm pretty sure none of you, unless there's something I don't know about you and your parents don't know, which they probably should by now, None of you are married. So immediately, you read something like that, guys especially, I'm, I'm never going to be a wife, actually. And so it's almost like you're reading the letter, and you're looking for the part that has to do with you. You're looking at the picture, and you're looking for yourself first. You're looking at the letter, and you're looking for the, the part of the letter that's addressed to you, and everything else you kind of can just put off to the side. However, I would disagree, because even though this one youth worker was feeling like, this is completely uh, unapplicable to a teenager to talk about marriage. I would actually say the opposite. I think it is really important that while you're in high school, we talk about marriage because the majority of you, number one, will be married at some point. At some point in time, even though some of you are terrified that you're going to remain single for the rest of your life like me, it's probably, <laughs> subtle jab at myself, you're probably going to be married at some point in time. If that's the case, well, you should probably know why you're getting married. You should probably know what kind of person you are to be and also what kind of person you're supposed to be looking for. Those two things. What kind of person am I supposed to be aiming for? What kind of character should I pursue as a Christian to become a godly wife one day, a godly husband one day? And also, what kind of 
godly husband or godly wife should I be looking for? What are the characteristics I should be looking for in those people? And so the reason why Peter is writing this is because, I mean, think about it. All of us want to get married for one reason, and it's not just the obvious reason. But because when we're together, we can do things that we can't do when we're apart. Two are better than one, the Bible says. If one falls down, the other is there to, to help them up. You're there to have a helpmate. And all of us are doing it because we don't want to be lonely. We don't want to feel like there's no one in the world that understands us. And now listen, you can take that to the nth degree, and you can extrapolate it and, and make that into an idol, but for the most part, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that you feel unsettled in your singleness, if you are not having the gift of singleness. It is a good thing that you feel like there's something missing. The problem becomes when we make that into everything. Like, like I will never be a complete person unless I'm married. That's when it becomes an idol. But even God himself, remember when we, when we did our dating series, God himself noticed it was not good that man should be alone. So marriage can be one of the most powerful tools in reaching people around us. Because people are collaborating in a marriage to do battle with the devil. To be able to bring the gospel to the people around them, to, to break into that community that they're already involved in and have someone to come, come alongside them and agree and, and say amen and pray with them. You have someone in agreement with you wherever you go. That is a very powerful thing and Satan knows it. And that's why marriage is often so attacked. That's why many of you know people, friends whose parents are divorced or maybe your own parents are divorced and, and you've seen, you've seen the, the, the terror and the horror that it brings so many families when marriages don't work out. And that's because Satan knows, the enemy knows, that there is power in marriage. And so Peter is saying that our marriages, if we're Christians, remember this whole thing is about you guys are scattered abroad, you're pilgrims, you don't live here, but you should be living as though you were looking forward to heaven. Because you don't belong here, you should be living like it. And our marriages should look different than the world's marriages. And so he, he gives the first command, talk about wives. And he says, wives, be submissive to your husbands, which right there can be a thorn in many people's flesh. Right there, it, it can make people feel weird. Like, what, does that, what does that even mean? Isn't that something that, like, that's so dated to us like 2,000 years ago, but that's something we don't follow today? Well, as we're going to look through this, I want you to kind of just be searching and, and keep it in like a safe place in your heart, in your mind, for later. When you do start dating, when you do get married one day, you'll be able to pull up this file and say that this is something I learned in preparation for that day. Just like, as an illustration, if someone was choking in a restaurant, how many people, when someone's choking, thinks immediately, oh, you know what, they have those posters those posters that are hanging on the wall that says, like, if someone's choking, I'm going to go read the poster. I've never seen anyone do that. I've seen people choke before, but I've never seen anyone run to find the poster. Where's the nearest poster? It's because you want to be prepared in the moment to be able to save someone's life. Now, if you never believe that you're going to be able to save someone, or you never think that you're going to run into a situation in which you're going to have to use those characteristics or those, uh, those whatever it is, the instructions, then you're not going to pay attention in CPR class. 
Those of you that are CCS juniors and maybe in public school, you're required to take a CPR class. You're not going to think about it unless you feel like you're going to have to apply it. When we were forced to take CPR as a church staff, believe me, I was like, oh, Lord, help me not to mess this up. Even though it's a dummy, I'm like, please, Albert, please survive. I named it, I named it dummy because you never know. So anyway, in the same way, these are important things that we have to remember as Christians to be able to use them later, but also for today so that we can be forming our, our characters in the people that we should be in marriage. Okay, so the first thing is in verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. So number one, he says, submit to your own husbands. Well, first of all, he says, likewise. So what he's saying here, remember the last teaching we did, is to submit to authority, whether you like them or not, whether you think that they're right or wrong, or whether you believe that they're just or unfair, you are to submit to authority because God put them there. In the same way, likewise, wives, submit to your own husbands because God put them there as your head, as the person who is over you. Now, it doesn't say wives submit to men. It says submit to your own husbands. Okay, so this is not saying that women can't be CEOs, not saying that women can't be president. It's not saying anything about women in, other than how you should behave in the home. Now, why does he say this? Why does he say submit? What is the model for this? What is the reason for this? Well, Ephesians 5 gives us, gives us a clue when it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So, what he's saying here, what Paul is saying, like Peter, is saying that since marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, just like you wouldn't expect God, Jesus, to submit to us, in the same way, women are to submit to men because they are the head and reflecting that model of Christ. This example was brought back all the way in Genesis. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So what he's saying is God was very intentional. When God created man first, Adam first, and then Eve came out of his side, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't arbitrary. In other words, he just kind of felt like Adam should come first, man should come first, and Eve should come second. But he specifically chose that the man would come first. In the same way, men are to be the heads of the household, to be in charge. This is not meaning that they are better. Make no mistake, this is not saying that men are cooler, are more talented, smarter, not saying any of that. It says that we both have differences and we are to complement each other's differences. Just like in a dance, one has to lead and one has to submit to the other. You both can't take the lead if you're dancing as a couple because it's just going to be chaos. But when two are dancing and one submits and one leads, you are able to dance together. 
Now, this kind of reflects, remember, since this is in the Bible, we can take this with other scripture, where Jesus said that if anyone desires to be first, he must be what? Last. If anyone wants to be above all, he must become a servant of all. So knowing that, the fact that a man is the head does nothing except that he is the protector, he is the provider, and he's the one who's looking out for, taking care of, and giving honor to the woman. You know, there's been many mission trips I've been on. I've led mission trips, and I've also just attended mission trips as a high school student, as another leader, and also leading them. Now, the fact that I'm in charge of mission trips does not give me any, like, ego points. I don't go home like, I'm so cool, I led a mission trip. I never feel that way. It can be really stressful sometimes, and many of you have seen it before. Leading mission trips, in many cases, I wish that I could just attend mission trips with people because you can just have fun. You just enjoy it. You don't have to think about what's next. What are we doing next? When's, when's dinner? Do we have enough money for dinner? You don't have to think of logistical things because all you have to do is just have fun and hang out with other people and just do the mission's work. So leading can be difficult. But as a leader, I'm not complaining about that. What I'm saying is I do that for a reason. It's so that you guys can enjoy the mission trip, so that you guys can have fun and not have to worry about whether or not that guy looks shady, whether or not that person over there is demon-possessed. I'm spitting a lot today. <laughs> Might be, I don't know, Satan. And this happens in England, too. You have demons everywhere. So you guys don't have to worry about that. That's my job and my responsibility. In a similar way, men, husbands, should be looking out for their wives. And the fact that they're in charge might make people be like, oh yeah, I'm cool, I'm the head honcho. But really, the only reason why you lead is so that you can serve others. If you look at a pyramid, many, many people look at it as like you're the one person up top and everyone is beneath you serving you. When really, it's in Jesus' model, it's in an inverse pyramid. You're at the bottom, at the little pinnacle, but you're at the bottom and you're serving everybody else. So this is the model that Jesus gives us. But why did Peter feel like this was really important to write? What was the need for him to write this? Well, he says to be submissive to your own husbands because there's a temptation to not submit. In the same way that you feel like there's unjust, whatever, hypocritical authority above you that doesn't deserve to be in charge, many women might feel like, well, what's the point of obeying this dude? He's like, he has no idea what he's doing. Or he's just wrong. Or what about this? What if you find yourself, and this could have been the case, doesn't mean it's the majority, but some women got saved, but their husbands weren't. Doesn't mean that they entered the relationship knowing that, but maybe one of the women got saved while they were married. And they feel like, well, I have this obligation to the church, but now I still have this obligation to my husband. How does that even work? Well, he says, even if some do not obey the word. This is then verse 1. That they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Listen, the reason why they do this, the reason why this is so important, is to win them by the conduct, by your innocence, by your maturity, by that holy submissiveness. That is attractive. And that is the model that God has intended. And it's by those good works, it's by those good deeds that people may see that and give glory to God, just like the same thing with authority. As you submit without a word, without questioning, without arguing, you just 
Do as you're told in your obedience. You are entrusting, you're giving an opportunity for faith that God is ultimately in control, that God has the ultimate authority. So how do you submit? What does it actually look like? Well, later on in verse 6, you have this awkward little verse where it says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So is the answer here that you're supposed to call your husband Lord? <laughs> Hello, emperor. That's really weird. I don't think that's exactly the correlation. But here's what it does mean. Sarah, and it's not really pointing to any specific point in Sarah's life, but it is pointing out that Sarah was obeying what Abraham said and what Abraham felt that the Lord was leading him to do and respected him even if she felt like he might have been wrong. Now it says in verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So this is how you do it. Chaste conduct. In other words, pure conduct. Not reviling, not being malicious, not being evil, but being pure before the Lord and not submitting to sin. Accompanied by fear, not like you're afraid of him, but you are afraid of disappointing him because you love him, because you care for him. So that's the first thing, is to be submissive to that husband. Now, how can you apply this to your life? Because once again, maybe you're getting off track. You're like, what, what is, how do, I don't understand. Two applications, ready? Number one, choose a man that you're willing to follow. If this is the case that women are to be submissive to their husbands, then very practically, you should be choosing a man that you are willing to follow, not willing to dominate. So here's the question. If you are contemplating a relationship, in a relationship, whatever, is the man that you're thinking about or dating, is he a person that's a leader, number one? And if he's a leader, where is he leading you? Is he leading you to parties, leading you to do stupid things with stupid people? Is he leading you into the house of God, leading you deeper into fellowship with Christ? Where is he leading you? If he's not leading at all and you're going to have to drag him to do everything, just think about this. If it doesn't start now, when is it going to start? God can change any heart, but here's what I found. Many people have entered a relationship trying to date a person's potential and not date the person. It is disrespectful to the person that you want to date or marry if you are dating them or marrying them in hopes that they become a different person. Because what you're saying is, you're not good enough, but I hope one day you will be. Instead, you should be submitting to the Lord, trusting the Lord, and allowing him to guide you to that person at the right time. So find a person that you're going to be willing to follow. Secondly, choose a man who is hearing from the Holy Spirit. Choose a man who is willing to hear from the Holy Spirit and who is listening to the Holy Spirit. That is really important, and this is why. If you're being submissive to your husband, that means you're following his direction. We're well, going to hope and pray that this person is hearing from the Lord. Because let's, let's just put in a very practical example. Let's say that one day 
he feels called to be a missionary. This came out of nowhere. Like, you, you never talked about being missionaries. You got married. You thought he was going to be a banker, make a lot of money. And then suddenly he's like, you know, I just feel like the Lord's just put it on my heart to sell our house, everything we have. Yes, our little puppy. And yes, the little practice dummy that we use for CPR class named Albert. We're selling everything we have. <laughs> Poor Albert, he died. We're selling everything we have, and we're moving to Uganda, and we're going to be missionaries. What do you think? You better hope that guy's hearing from the Holy Spirit. Because from what we hear here in the Bible, you're allowed to disagree. You're allowed to say, hey, listen, I don't think that's wise. But at the end of the day, if he says we're going, being submissive says, you know what? I'm trusting that you're hearing from the Lord. So hope, pray that they're hearing from the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to be following him doing a lot of dumb things. That means that he should be spending time in the word. How's the time they spend in the word? Is it rushed? Is it five minutes and he's done? Or does he come away with, with a passion and a desire? And listen, just because you don't see that right away, I'm not saying that the person that you're thinking of or dating or whatever, I'm not saying that the person is a terrible person or whatever. Maybe they haven't tapped into that potential. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to start, you know. Like, you're never supposed to look for the perfect husband. You're not supposed to look for the perfect individual who's just always on fire for God because you'll never find that person. But at least find somebody who seems like they're going in the right direction. Secondly, how's their prayer life? You can't hear from the Holy Spirit if you're not praying. And it doesn't have to be he prays a half hour every day. It doesn't have to be he prays a half hour every week. But is he praying? Does he have prayer requests on his heart? Does he ask you what you need prayer for? Does he ask other people he doesn't like what they need prayer for? And is he praying for his enemies? Is he hearing from the Holy Spirit? And listen, it is really hard to find that guy in high school. Really hard. I think of all the people that I think are really spiritually mature at my age. None of us were mature in high school. None of us were that guy in high school. It's really rare to find that person. So don't feel like just because you don't see that person, maybe you're holding out, you're like, I don't see anybody who seems like they might be a person on fire for the Lord. That's okay. Maybe they haven't got there yet. Most of us guys, we're just really slow. But pray that the Lord leads you to that right person at the right time. Here's the second thing for wives or ladies, I'll say for you. Verse 3, here we go. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. What is he saying? He says, don't let your appearance be merely outward, adorning your hair, gold, whatever. Is he saying be ugly? Is he saying, don't even care what you look like. Just go out the door and just like, here I come, world. No. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. In other words, not just the outside, but concentrate, focus on the inside beauty, the inward beauty, the hidden person, he says, of the heart. I love that phrase because it's almost like sometimes appearances can be deceiving. And sometimes the person who you might think is like cold, the 
person who doesn't seem like, you know, they're all into the Bible study or whatever, but you have a conversation with them, and you discover this person is in the Word. This person has a passion and heart for God, and maybe they're just introverted. And quite frankly, there are a lot of you ladies that are really mature in your walks, but you're just introverted. And so people might mistake that for dispassionate. People might mistake that for your person who just doesn't even care, but you do. And what I love about this is he recognizes that God looks on the inside. That hidden, beautiful person that's inside is what really matters. Now, Proverbs 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 22, says this. I love this verse. You can write this down. Proverbs eleven twenty-two: A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now, you probably hear that verse, and some of you ladies are like, Oh, that beautiful gold ring. No, you'd be the pig. <laughs> the whole point of the verse is the pig, not the gold ring. If your attitude stinks, if you don't have anything inside, you are like adorning a pig. That's what the Bible is saying. So I have a question for you ladies. Everyone look up here. Here's a really heart-searching, difficult question to answer. Okay, here we go. If you were to limit the amount of time on your appearance, in other words, doing your hair, make up your clothes, if you were to limit that time on your appearance to match the same amount of time you spend in the Word of God in prayer, how would you look every day? If you were, let's say that you, you only spend five minutes praying and reading every single day, and you say, you know what, I'm going to match that time with the amount of time it takes for me to get ready and to look good. How would you look? You see, the key isn't to just disregard your appearance, but are you working on what's most important because the outward beauty fades. Trends fade. Your clothes that are really cool today are not going to be cool tomorrow. The things that you're wearing, the hairstyles, all those things will not matter in five years. When I have a kid one day, I'm going to tell them that when they become a junior high student, do not let anyone take pictures of you, ever. Because it is impossible to be in junior high and to look good. Impossible. And the problem is everyone thinks they do. And so they take selfies galore. And then everyone, now that you have Facebook or Instagram, everyone's like posting those selfies from like four years ago. You're like, no, why? So I'm going to do them a favor and tell them just, you're not going to look good. Just, just try to like close your eyes for three years and you're going to survive. Spend more time on your heart so you can attract the right type of man. That's what it comes down to. If you're always working on the outside, guess what? You're going to attract very shallow people. If you're working on the inside, the hidden person of the heart, then you're going to attract a person who's not as much deceived by appearances. A person who's willing to dig, to find out if you're a person of substance. That's what's really important. And that's why this is the un unfading, incorruptible beauty that the Lord instills in our hearts. This echoes the words of Paul where he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel for propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. 
Now, he's not saying gold is bad, braiding your hair is bad, because some people might extrapolate that and just like, oh, you can't wear gold because it's in the Bible. You don't do that. No, if you took that same logic, you shouldn't wear clothes either, because that's what he mentions there. It's like gold, hair, clothes. You need all three. It's okay. They're not bad things, but you can't make that everything. It is so important, because if you think of the subject of modesty, by the way, because people are always like, what, what, what am I allowed to wear? What am I not allowed to wear? What it comes down to is this. If your heart is to bless other people, love other people, and you're caring about your own character, you're going to be doing the right thing. You're not going to have to think about like, oh, am I allowed to wear this? Am I allowed to wear that? Because that doesn't matter anyway, because those things are kind of like subjective. But if your heart is to love God, then you're going to be modest all the while. John Piper has this amazing quote, and I, I, was, I was like saving this quote for like two months. So here it is. Ready? Pay attention. Clothes are not meant to make people think about what is under them. Clothes are meant to direct attention to what is, what is not under them. Arms and hands that serve others in the name of Christ, beautiful feet that carry the gospel to where it is needed, and the brightness of a face that has beheld the glory of Jesus. Wow, that's an amazing quote. What he's saying is, your clothes aren't supposed to attract attention to your body or what's underneath the clothes. It's to draw attention to the things that do good works. Just like a picture frame is only meant to complement what is inside, so are our outward appearances to complement what is inside. It's not saying look ugly. It's not saying just dress in whatever you want and just don't even care anymore. What it's saying is let it complement what is inside of you so you can be a person of substance inside and out. So one other thing I want to point out here before we move on to verse 7 when we talk about husbands is he talks about gold. Now when I look at that as a guy, maybe not as a girl, you didn't think about this, but as a guy, I, I don't, like, ever notice when girls are wearing diamonds, jewelry, gold, whatever. I could care less. I mean, if a guy wants to disagree with me, that's fine. But I never notice other women's jewelry. But other women notice other women's jewelry all the time. Sometimes the things that you wear aren't even to attract a mate. Sometimes it's to... In, indict jealousy in others. You want to make other people feel like you're valued. And so that's the other danger for women is that you want to feel good about yourself and have other people put down. So how we dress matters. But what should matter more is what is inside. And if your heart is right, you're going to be doing the right thing. And so he says in verse 5 and 6, In this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So the Bible says that these women in the Bible were beautiful. You know, it actually records. Sarah was beautiful. Rachel was beautiful. Esther was beautiful. She was in a beauty pageant. She used beauty to the glory of God, and she saved the Jewish people. There's nothing wrong with being 
good looking. Can I get an amen? There's nothing wrong with that. But even though the Bible records them being attractive, beautiful, none of us are reading our, our devotions in the morning, walk away and be like, I wonder what they look like. None of us care because what lasts, what's transcended the ages, is what they did. Their good works, how they honor the Lord, the stories of faith. None of you ladies are going to walk away from the story of Esther and be like, oh, I have to be more beautiful so I can win beauty pageants and save the Jewish people. None of you are going to apply that to your lives in that kind of a way. Maybe some of us men, but not, I'm kidding. But we're going to model their actions, their courage, and their faith. All right, so verse 7 is for the husbands. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world? Only one verse? The ladies get like four verses, guys only get one verse? Yes, it's because we're dumb and we probably couldn't keep track of anything more than one verse. I don't actually know if that's the reason why. But here's what I do know. This is one verse with very serious consequences. You didn't read any consequences in the, in the prior verse. Just kind of warnings, kind of just like admonitions, like this is what you should do. But verse 7, it says, if you don't listen, God won't listen to your prayers. Ouch. Which assumes something, right? It assumes that men should be praying. In fact, in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It is the position of the man to be praying on behalf of his household. To be praying. I mean, what he's saying here is, in the expectation that prayer is the way that we see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed in Lord's Prayer, if you are not honoring your wife, you will not be effective for the kingdom of God. That is essentially what he's saying. It is so dangerous. And once again, being a leader, you have a stricter judgment. And this is what's required of us as men. So he says, first, dwell with them with understanding. The temptation for guys is sometimes you just don't want to listen. I'm right. You're wrong. I mean, I do that all the time. And some of you guys know that. I've gotten better. I'm right. You're wrong. End of story. This is what we're doing. But he says, dwell with them with understanding, hearing out their concerns, hearing out their frustrations, having a dialogue because you're giving honor to them because you love them, even if you know that they're wrong. You're still listening to them and you're appreciating them and you're loving them by trying to understand them, which might be impossible, but that's another point. Giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, you read that verse, and once again, it's kind of awkward. It's like, this is the verse I never want to show my unbelieving friends. It's like, women, the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we, we should know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the inferior vessel. Most likely what Peter says here is just very practically, especially for that day and age, men, for the majority of men, are usually stronger physically than women in a couple. The guy will usually be stronger physically than the woman. It's not to say anything about, like, they're not qualified. 
They're not as smart, anything. It's just physically. And so this is why uh, domestic abuse is such a problem. Because men take advantage of that physical strength. And what he's saying here is not necessarily just even a condemnation against physical abuse, but even overarching that, he's saying, don't take your kind of like bravo or your, your macho attitude as a way to dominate and have your way in, in the household. But to dwell with her with understanding and giving honor to her because the reason why you're in this relationship is not so you can get your way, it's so that you can honor her and honor the Lord. That's why you're in that relationship. And here's the danger for us guys. Ready? Everyone, every guy, look at, look at me for a second. As guys, we want to be the hero. We want to be the savior. We want to be strong. We want to be the one who always wins, the one that never disappoints. And because of that, we see the damsel in distress, and we want to solve the problem. We want to save her. We want to do those things. But we got to be very careful that we're not saving to feed our ego. We're saving to give her honor because she needed to be saved, because she needs to be blessed. She needs to be honored. She's protected. I mean, imagine, I know we're not married, but, and, yeah, because we're not married, you understand that. So, imagine you're out married one day with your wife, guys, you're with your wife, you're out to dinner, and some guy starts hitting on your wife right in front of you. And so, very rightly so, you walk up to that guy, you confront him, and we know you're supposed to talk peacefully, but you probably punch him in the face. You do that for one reason, to give honor to your wife. Not so that you can feel macho and be like, I beat this guy up. Look how cool I am. And there is a temptation to feel that way. There's a temptation that when you see the danger, you, you see someone being harmed, you think this is the opportunity for people to see me as the hero. Versus this is the time I get to defend the defenseless, to protect the innocent to be able to give glory to God by the good deed that I'm doing. So that being said, our job as men is to protect their honor, not to dominate, not to be a hero, and to be cool and feed our own ego. It's to love, protect, and, and wash her with the water of the word, the Bible says. So that we can be more effective in our marriage, not abusing our authority or our power. So two quick applications for the men. And we'll close. Number one, learn how to be a good listener. Learn how to be a good listener. I'm about to give you one of the most practical tips that I didn't learn up until two years ago. So pay attention. You'll be in an argument with someone. Doesn't have to be a woman. Maybe it is. Maybe with your wife one day. You'll be in an argument. And what they're saying does not make sense. And you know that they're wrong. But just because they can articulate the reasons why you're wrong doesn't mean that you're not wrong. I know that sounds really confusing, but let me explain. Let's say that you're in an argument with your wife one day. And you're saying that you think that God is calling you to donate I don't know, 10% of your tithe to the church. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm really thinking off the top of my head. 
Let's say that you feel like the Lord's calling you to tithe 10% of all that you have to a church in Wyoming. And your wife says you should donate 10% to the local church. Because that's what the Bible says. Because that's actually right. Now, as you're arguing with her, let's say that she doesn't know that that's in the Bible. So she, she can't even think of why. She just knows that it's wrong. Women's intuition. She's like, well, I just, just think about Charlie at the church. I mean, like, you're, you're taking your tie, you're bringing it over Wyoming. No one even likes Wyoming. Sorry if you're from Wyoming. But let's say, say that's her reason. And you're hearing those reasons. You're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. There are plenty of good people in Wyoming. That's why we're tithing there. Just because she can't articulate why you're wrong doesn't mean that she's not wrong. And sometimes being a good listener means that even though what you seem to say doesn't be, seem to be right, I want to pray on it. As a, a man, as a leader of the household, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to me through her. And so I'm going to listen to her even though I'm convinced that I'm right. That's what I mean. Learn to be a good listener and hear the other side even of what she's not saying. Secondly, another application, learn how to give honor and not just respect. Learn how to give honor and not just respect. Respect is something like you opening the door for a lady, you're, you know, letting her take the seat first, you're letting her get in line for food first. That's chivalry. That's respect. But there's a difference between respect and honor. Honor means that you are lifting her up. She has weights. She has, she has something that, that needs to be seen by other people. And so you're doing that for her. You're making sure that she's appreciated, that she's loved. You're going out of your way to be creative, to bless her. When you're dating, you're not just doing the same old dumb thing. You're not just going out to the movies. You're not just going on like Google and seeing like, what are cool dating ideas? Maybe you are, but maybe you're using your own brain to get creative, to think about ways that you can show her how much you care about her. Writing her a letter. I don't think about this too much, but buying her a rose. You can do things that are creative to give her honor and not just respect. Does that make sense? In conclusion, now that we talked about husbands, wives, we need to talk about prayer lives. How is your prayer life? Because in this last verse, what it says here is, uh, in verse 7, you're to be heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Hopefully, you're envisioning one day that when you are married, that a good portion of your marriage will be spent together in prayer. You know what's really hard to do? Pray alone. That's really hard to do. And we need to do it. It's necessary. Jesus did it. But what's really sweet is a married couple that can pray together. I've heard pastors encourage me, too, to like saying, there's nothing sweeter than being able to pray with the person that you're spending the rest of your life with. Aim to do that. Aim to make it your goal that you're going to have a prayer life now so that when you enter the marriage, it's not this weird foreign thing. You're not used to praying like, oh, how do I pray in public? And you start with a pharisaical prayer and like, let's do the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Bible. But you, you cultivate a prayer life now so that you can go into your marriage ready to do battle with the enemy who will be sure to try to attack your marriage. In marriage counseling here at the church, many times we, we ask them when, when people are hurting, when people are starting to split apart, we ask them, are you reading together? Are you praying together? 
Most often than not, the marriages that are falling apart are the ones that don't pray together, aren't reading together. Just like any time that you are failing spiritually, morally, you know that you're drifting away from the Lord. Well, let's bring it back to, have you been reading the Bible? Well, no, I haven't been reading the Bible. Never fails. That's always the case. Why is that? It's because the Bible says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The two are completely contrary and opposed to one another. So you're not going to do the things that you wish if you're not in the Spirit. That being the case, make it a point to say, I want to pray for something. So here's your application. If the Bible says, especially for us guys, we're to be the leaders and not leaving it to the girls, because I think sometimes in the church too, it's, it's almost framed like the women are the prayer warriors. And the guys, we actually do stuff. And that is completely wrong and unbiblical. The Bible says that men are to be praying. And if you're not respectful, you're not honoring your wife, your prayers will be hindered. God will not listen to you until you make it right with your wife. That is crazy. But if that was you, how much would that verse matter to you? In other words, would you be praying enough that that verse would actually have negative consequences in your life. It should be our expectancy that each time we come to God, we're talking to, to someone who's living, a God that's working, that's powerful. That each time that we pray, God listens, he hears. I had a moment, I'll tell you like two weeks ago, not to like make you worried about me. I had a moment, just like everybody else, where I was discouraged. And I prayed, I said, Lord, I'm having a tough day today. I said, I could really use some encouragement. I wrote in my journal, and I sealed away in my journal. Once again, don't worry about me. It's just, I'm a, I'm a human. I wrote that in my journal. The next day, I get a letter in the mail from a pastor I've met once in Colorado, who's a pastor of a large church in Colorado, who I opened this letter. It was just an encouragement saying what a great thing it was to meet me at this conference months ago, whatever. He says, the best is yet to come. And it's such an encouragement. It's at the perfect time. And I knew that's because I prayed the day before. It's like, what in the world? That was so awesome. And that immediately encouraged me. But how many of us have not because we don't ask? We don't pray. We don't ask. And you're discouraged. You're down. You know, and like you came here. Maybe you came here and you're like, I need, I need to be encouraged. And we, you, came, you came in here and you're like, teachings on husbands and wives. Okay, I guess I'm encouraged. Has that ever happened to you before? You're like, you're praying like, Lord, speak to me. And it's like, a, it's like a purity talk or it's a dating talk or it's just something weird. It's like, oh, I don't know. I feel encouraged, I guess. Here's your encouragement. Call out to the Lord because he wants to hear you. And think about this. Think about this. Last thought, and we're, we're going to close that prayer. If marriage is to be an intimate communion between one another, that's a picture of our relationship with God. Why don't we have that same intimacy with Christ in prayer? If marriage is supposed to be this whole romantic thing where you just, you want to be around each other all the time, you want to text each other, you want to talk, you want to be on the phone, should it not be the same way with our marriage with the Lord? To be calling out to him throughout the day, checking in with him, not always having this regimented, segmented thing where it's like half hour, one hour, five minutes, whatever. But you're just constantly casting your, your care to the Lord in prayer because you know that he cares for you. He wants to bear those burdens for you.